Chapter 19 of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 19. A very notable piece of service, sir said Sergeant Culverton to me the same afternoon, as we sat resting our weary limbs after a very excellent meal which we made from hens, fruit, and other good things on the island. So it seems to me, Sergeant, said I, though you know I have no experience of such matters. But how goes the general now? As well as we could wish, answered the sergeant. "'Tis a hurt wants no Galen or Paracelsus to its mending. "'Take that of me, sir. I have seen these things and know. "'It is but a clean, pretty flesh wound, and no harm done save for the letting of so much blood, "'which I never saw lost in so large a measure and death kept off. "'A very tall man, our general, sir, a very tall man. "'I'm heartily glad to hear you say so, sergeant,' I said, "'being ever willing to humor him for the great service he had done me. "'You have been acquainted with great captains in the emperor's service?' and no one when you see him. Indeed, sir, I do, returned Calverton, very pleased. And I may tell you, at a word, he is one, a very Gonsalvo, sir. Yet I marvel how he came by such skill and dispositions, being wholly unlearned in the very rudiments of war. Why, sir, I spake to him at Port Pheasant, concerning our fort of timber, and believe me, he knew not the difference betwixt counterfort and cavallero, or counterscarp and argine. And as for horsemanship, he has no more practice or contemplation of it than his cook's boy, and yet a notable soldier. It is as you say, sergeant, I answered, and we must the more honor him in that, being his own master, he is able by such excellent practice to show how soldierly have been his precepts. And I grieve sorely that his skill and valor has met with no reward today. No reward? said Culverton. Has your worship seen the sail that lies before the general's bower? Where is the common stick? No, sergeant. What do you mean? Tis not. And yet there are some indifferent foolish toys gathered there that will repay some of the blood that was spilt. Why, how is this, sergeant? Did not the general charge that no man should load himself save with what came from the treasure house? True, sir, so he did. But as I was saying... Saving his most excellent dispositions, he's unlearned in things warlike. If a man make war, look you, he must make it according to the honor, ancient universal customs and discipline of war, whereof the honest pillaging of a captured town is one. Wherefore I made bold of my bitter experience to supply our general's sweet ignorance and lead some of the lads, when occasion was, to certain indifferent well-furnished houses, if some thereafter made free with certain trifling bars of silver from the governor's house. It was by no furthering of mine. All I did was out of niceness for our general's honor. What think you those Spanish caballeros would have thought of him if, when they'd returned, they'd found their houses unplundered? I warrant you, sir, they would have been sore grieved in their soldiership to think that a man who could deliver such an assault so boldly against all their forces and discipline was ignorant of the most common and ancient usage of the wars. Here one came to summon me to the general's presence, so I heard no more, though I found afterwards... It was even as the sergeant said, and that far from coming out of the town empty-handed as I'd thought, almost every man had carried off something, which all being gathered in the common store according to custom, made a show which was of no little content to us. 
Indeed, I think we were all very merry that afternoon, not only seeing us how easily we'd captured the town, which bred in us no less courage for further attempts than hope of their success, but also because we'd brought off our general safely, in comparison with which gain we held our loss of gold as nothing, the more so as his hurt proved of no greater account, nor was any other of our company more than slightly wounded save our trumpeter who'd been slain on the spot. Thus we were in gentle mood to receive the envoy from Nombre de Dios, which was the occasion of the general's summons to me. I found Frank with a cheerful countenance, seated in a kind of hammock which the mariners had made for him from a piece of sailcloth. His officers and gentlemen stood about him to receive the envoy with as much state as we might, whereby, having brushed the dust from our clothes and made what shift we could, we displayed a tolerable front. Mr. Oxenham and Harry were sent to conduct the Spaniard to the presence, and we saw them return with the most point-device little gentleman i ever beheld he was by his dress a captain of foot and by his delicate and well-guarded complexion but late come out of spain his little black moustache was disciplined to the nicety of a hair but his whole dress no less brilliant than his countenance nor more fantastic than his bearing he approached making legs very sweetly to us all and a profound congee to our general which we returned as decently as we might after an offering of commendations so stuffed with unheard-of conceits as i can never remember again he told us the occasion of his coming of my mere good will and as it were for my unworthy honour most admirable caballeros said he with an infinity of conceited gestures I have conveyed myself festinately hither to your most honorable presence, moved thereto by the wholesome desire with which my eyes were anungered to behold, view, regard, and contemplate the most redoubtable captain and his heroical gentlemen who have attempted so great and incredible a matter with so few paltry and inconsiderable valiant numbers being more especially moved thereto when it was discovered by the most excellent shooting of your honourable arrows that you were englishmen and no frenchmen as we apprehended seeing that now we knew our foe would hold themselves after the ancient gentle discipline of the wars and be content with an honourable courteous pillage of our treasure instead of seeking vulgar and bloody cruelty upon our persons and being most especially moved thereto because his excellency our honourable governor being assured that you are gentlemen englishmen and no pirate french gladly consented to my coming and lastly being most singularly especially moved hereto because his excellency having been informed by certain townsmen that they knew your honourable captain having at diverse times been most courteously pillaged and kindly used by him these two years past charged me to inquire as follows imprimus whether your honourable captain be the valiant captain drake or not item whether your arrows which have wounded many or are men be poisoned or not item how the said wounds may be cured item what victuals and other necessities you desire for speeding you of your voyage hence which his excellency desires to furnish you with all as far as he dare having regard to his commission 
This and the very flood more of such like desperate intemperance of phrasing he graciously voided upon us, the writing whereof, were I able to set it down, would devour more paper than I could ever find digestion for. When he was at a halt at last, Frank sat up in his chair, and after a little pause, answered him thus courteously, but very curt, because of his weakness, no less than his distaste for Spaniards. I thank you for your courtesy, said he, and I pray you, after you have partaken of a poor supper at our hands, to return to his excellency with my most honorable commendations and inform him thus. I am the same drake he means. It is never my manner to poison my arrows. The said wounds may be cured with ordinary surgery. And, as for victuals, we already have more than enough out of the abundance which he has already so hospitably provided us with all in this island of bastimentos, while for necessities I want for none, save the special commodity which this country yields, whereof not yet having enough to content myself and my company, I must unwillingly beseech his excellency to be at the pain of holding open his eyes for a space, since before I depart, if God lend me a life and leave, I mean to reap some of your harvest, which you get out of the ground and send in to Spain to trouble all the earth. The little gallant seemed a good deal taken aback at this unlooked-for answer, but recovering himself, promised to convey it to the governor, treasured in the inmost sanctuary of his bosom. And if I may, without offense, move such a question, he ended by saying, what should be the honorable cause of your worthy departing, seeing what does your sweet desires from a town, where is above three hundred and sixty tons of silver ready for the blade fleet, and much more gold in value and iron chests in the king's treasure house. Because, said Harry, whom Frank motioned to speak, our captain was wounded, and we value his life beyond all the gold in the Indies. Dane, most valiant caballeros, answered our pouncet box, give me leave to say that, as I am a gentleman, the preeminent excellence of your reason in departing is hardly overbalanced by your unmeasured courage in attending. With that we fell to supper, during which we did all honor to our guests, all of us but Frank being much taken with his fantastic courtesy and pretty humors. Harry and Mr. Oxenham were particularly moved to him, and he to them, so that all supper time they vied with each other in the extravagance of their compliments, till I thought the little gallant could swallow no more. When he took his leave at last, our captain entreated him very courteously and bestowed certain gifts as most likely to content him. So we conducted him to his boat to make our farewells. I protest, caballeros, said he, a little flushed with a good share of the contents of our prize. I protest I had never been so honored of any in my life. And give me leave to say, answered Harry, I have never seen an embassy so admirably discharged. I kiss your hands, said the Don, and as I am a gentleman, shall joy no more till I have the felicity of crossing rapiers with you upon your next attempt. Till then, by my soul's honor, returned Harry, I too die, nor could I conceive greater honor than to color my blade with such courtly blood as your excellencies. Nay, sir, I protest, as I am a gentleman, the honor would be mine. I could desire no higher distinction than to feel your point between these unworthy ribs. 
I pray heaven, said Mr. Oxenham, your joy come not so soon as to prevent my poor flesh first kissing your very bright particular blade. I kiss both your hands, sir, said the Don, and thrust we may be all sweetly sorted to our most gentlemanly desires. With such light compliment and an infinite making of legs, we at length took leave of him, greatly entertained with his humours, and delighted with the renown which our captain had won by this and his former exploits. That evening our captain held a council to determine what further we should attempt, and there too was called Diego, the negro whom we had brought back from Nombre de Dios, that he might be questioned as to the present condition of the town soldiers and gold all the same what little don tells he said grinning all over his good-humoured face nombre very full of soldiers and treasure house very strong all because of my people the zimaroons i know better way to get gold from dons than to burn fingers after it in nombre say you so diego said frank in his kindly way which always won the heart of these people a very worthy tall fellow you seem let us hear about it and i doubt not you shall hear of something good too yes i know answered the black fellow showing his white teeth from ear to ear i know captain drake so do simaroons spaniards beat simaroons captain drake beats spaniards mighty tall man captain drake amongst simaroons well well good diego says frank very pleased but what of the gold why this way says the negro looking very cunning treasure house very strong best get gold before it done got the treasure house yes but how says frank why easy as a fall says diego grinning with all his might i go to Semaroons and say to chief captain drake wants gold mas then bring his nobleness here says the chief so you go up through the woods with the samaroons and they show you he went on hardly able to speak for glee where to stop the great mule trains that come from panama to meet the plate fleet with that he opened his wide mouth laid his head back and roared with laughter rubbing his hands between his knees and dancing an ungainly measure to the sound of his own merriment this and other intelligences which we had from the negro on further questioning him bred in us a great hope of making our voyage though our other plans failed for in all they agreed and confirmed what captain drake had learned on his two former voyages which was that on the arrival of the plate fleet from spain great quantities of gold silver and pearls came across the isthmus from panama to nombre de dios partly by recuas or meal trains and partly in frigates by way of the rio de chagres which ran into the sea nigh to where we were from a place called venta cruz within six leagues of panama when therefore we'd refreshed ourselves at the island two days our captain sent a party under his brother john to search this river with orders after he had made full discovery of it to join captain rance and the ships at the island of pinos whither we presently set sail it was our captain's intent now to attempt cartagena before the garrison got wind of our being on the coast but captain rance was not willing to join us thinking we stood in too great danger after we had discovered ourselves at nombre de dios frank was not sorry to dismiss him i know for at all times he very hardly endured to have another joined in command with him 
Therefore, as soon as John Drake returned from his discovery, we parted company with Sir Edward Horsey's crew, and remained to make our voyage, if we could, without them, notwithstanding all the dangers they feared. Yet our captain would not altogether give up his desire to visit Cartagena, whither we sailed with all speed, though much delayed with light airs, calms, and want of hands, for now that our company was divided between the ships and the pinnaces, each craft was undermanned. So it fell out that a Spanish pinnace preceded us a few hours, bringing news of our coming, and we found they had made so large a provision of horse, foot, and ordnance for our entertainment, that being unwilling to trouble them further, we craved them to bestow on us a great ship of Seville, of some two hundred and forty tons burthen, which we found well laden in the harbour, and this they did, though not so graciously as our moderation warranted. Having in this way, and more certainly by letters found in two other prizes which we took, learned that our presence was known all along the coast, it remained for us to take some course with our difficulties, which at last we did, and in such wise as gave me fresh proof, if any were wanting, of that extraordinary resolution in our captain which seemed to grow every day more constant and heroical. There is no shift for it but the Cimarroons, said Frank to me, as we lay off the islands of St. Bernardo, some three leagues from Cartagena. We must take to our pinnaces till we find them and hide along the coast, so that the Spaniards may think we have departed, which I am resolved not to do till our voyage be made. But how can we continue longer on the coast, said I? It may take us weeks to find the Cimarroons, and we have but little store of victuals. We can make provision with our pinnaces, could we find some place to hide. There are plenty of victuallers to be taken all along the coast. That would be possible, I answered, if we could properly man our pinnaces, but this we cannot do, not having hands enough in the ships as it is. And yet there is no other way, said Frank, musing, and then looking very hard at me, he went on after a pause. What a mercy it would be if one of our ships were taken from us. What do you mean? asked I, aghast. Why, says he, then we should have enough men to man the pinnaces, True, I answered, but how shall we get back to England? God would send us means, says he. A smart frigate or so would fall into our hands when we wanted it. Indeed, it would be a mercy if one ship were taken. Then we could make a storehouse of the other and make our voyage with the full manned pinnaces. Perhaps it would be well, I answered, but such a thing is not to be looked for. Cortez burned his ships, said Frank, as though he were thinking and had not heard me. Why should I not destroy mine? Yet I think he cannot have loved his as I love mine, the smartest sailors that ever left Plymouth Harbor. Frank, cried I, this is madness. Besides, your company would never permit it. Not permit it, says he with sort of a dull fire under his frown. None of my company must talk so, Jasper, and yet I love the lads for their love of the ships. Nor must a captain, who would be cheerfully followed, strain obedience further than is necessary. A great captain, as I trust by God's help to be ere I die, 
differs only from his fellows in that he is readily obeyed. Any man of ordinary wit can see what should be done, yet must he often abstain from commanding it because he knows how hardly it will be obeyed, and as often, if he do command it, find the labor of procuring obedience too great for his constancy. But your great captain fears not to command anything, seeing he is always cheerfully obeyed. And why, lad? Because by policy he shall cheat those under him into a cheerful willingness towards all he intends. Well, said I, I will call you before all men a great captain, if tomorrow you can make your men cheerfully fire either of these ships. Then, lad, says he, I pray you go fetch hither Tom Moon, the carpenter of the Swan. That is my own ship, and that is the one I must burn. Tomorrow arise betimes, and come with me fishing in the pinnace, and you shall see how, by my policy, my brother and his crew shall willingly fire her. I did all he said, and in the early morning we were off to the fishing, for about the island where we lay was a great store of the fishes. As we passed the swan, we fell abroad of her, and Frank cried out to his brother to come fishing with him. John Drake jumped up at once, willingly agreeing to follow us presently. We cast off, but before we'd gone but a few strokes, Frank asked us if the swan did not sit very low in the water, which we saw at once that she did. Ahoy, Jock, sung out our captain then. What makes you bark so deep? Nay, I knew not that she was over deep, says Jack, and called to the steward to see what water was in her. Presently there was a mighty splashing, and up comes the steward, wet to the waist, crying out that the ship was full of water. All was bustle in a moment, some of the crew rushing to the pumps, and some splashing about to hold to search for the leak. Tom Moon being the most forward there, we fell abroad her at once to offer our help. John Drake would have none of it, but only begged to be excused his attendance on his brother. We have hands enough, said he, and we will have her free in a trice. We have not pumped these six weeks, so what strange chance has befallen to give us six foot of water in the night is more than I can tell. But I pray you go on with your fishing. We shall want some good stuffing coming dinner time after our pumping. Besides our captain and myself, there were none with us, I think, who had any suspicion of what this strange chance was, so that our men were not a little surprised to find on our return that, though out of their great love for their dainty bark, the Swan's Company had well nigh worked their lives out at the pumps, yet they had freed but a few inches of water. What, so bad? cried Frank to his brother, who looked over the side, very weary. Nay, then, you shall have our help now while you eat your dinner. With that, acting his part better than I could have looked, for so in plain and blunt a nature, he sprang on board, and with his own hands fell to work at one of the pumps with such good will that I thought to see it burst. All our company, set on by his example, worked no less hard, yet though we continued in shifts till three in the afternoon, we had freed the water little more than a foot, nor could any man find where the leak was. Wearied out at last, John Drake, with his master and crew, gathered round Frank to consult him as to what order was to be taken, for up till now our general had not said a word, save to encourage men at the pumps, seeing that his brother was captain of the ship. "'What shall we do, Frank?' said poor John Drake. "'We shall have to pump the whole North Ocean out of her before she's dry.' "'Indeed, Jack,' says our captain. "'I cannot tell what order to take to save her.' 
Well, I care not what comes of her, says Jack desperately. I think the devil has got her for good and all. It is some hellish Indian witchcraft of these Spaniards. I'm at my wit's end with her, so do what you will. The whole company were plainly weary of their ship, no less than was their captain, and crowded round to hear what Frank would say, very hopefully, for they had all come to think there was no hole so deep or miry that he could not draw them out of it. If you leave it to me, says Frank, I tell you there is only one way. The ship is dead, that is plain. It is my ship, and it is lost by no fault of master or mariner. If any is to blame, it is I. You, Jack, I would have go aboard the Admiral with your master and take command of her, and I will be content with a pinnace till I can capture you a smart frigate in place of this rotten tub. And incontinently we will fire her that the Spaniards may find their witchcraft has availed them nothing. I think this advice astonished the company a good deal, but presently they were all very content with it, saying it was most worthy of their general, who was always as ready to take blame on himself as to find resolute remedies for mishaps of others. There were a few who had sailed in her the former two voyages, and would gladly have made an effort to save her, being ashamed to lose her. But when her owner so boldly gave her up and took all the blame on himself, they were very glad to be rid of her. In a few minutes the pinnaces were all laid abroad of her, so that every man might take from her whatever he wished, and thereupon poor John Drake, his eyes full of tears, fired her with his own hand. Poor Jack! My heart bled for him, but I knew it was the only saving of our venture. So it came about, as Frank had said. Not only had the whole company been glad enough to destroy the ship of which they were so proud, not only had he got his way, hard as it seemed, but by his generosity to his brother, his hearty sharing of their labor, and his cheerful resolution through it all, he stood higher with the whole company than ever he did before. Well, Frank, said I, as we sailed away next day towards the Sound of Darien with the Pasha and our fully manned pinnaces, you have your will but it was a sorry trick to play them. Not but a bit of policy, laughed he, such as all commanders must use at times. Save you, lad, from Machiavelli and all his works, said I, for I think you are fast-growing Italianate. But tell me, how was it done? Why, with a spike gimlet, says he. Tom Moon pleaded hard for his beloved bark, so that my heart almost melted. Then he said he would get his throat cut, but I told him to be secret, to do it close to the keel at night, and lay something over the holes that the flow of the water should make no noise to betray him, and so it was done. It was a desperate piece of service, I know, but Tom Moon shall have cause to remember what he did for me at this pass. And so indeed he had, for when Frank equipped his fleet for that renowned voyage in which he encompassed the world, he made this trusty carpenter captain of the Cantor, or Christopher, as it was afterwards named. End of chapter 19. Recording by Nathan Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.